Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Last month marked the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, Augsburg University professor of history William D. Green joins us to discuss the suffrage movement in Minnesota. He is the author of a book out on the University of Minnesota Press titled The Children of Lincoln, White Paternalism and the Limits of Black Opportunity in Minnesota. Professor Green, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you for having me back, Jim. August marked the 100th anniversary of the enactment of the 19th Amendment, which ended gender restrictions on voting. A lot has been written and discussed about this milestone in the national media, so we'll focus more on suffrage activists in Minnesota and how Minnesota women were affected by the amendment. But let's start with a brief overview of the 19th Amendment. What would you add to the significance of the event besides granting women the right to vote? Well, it meant that all Americans could be heard. I think that's the fundamental issue here. Before then, half the population, give or take, uh, you know, a fraction or more, you know, half the population was ignored. It could be ignored. Uh, Policymakers didn't have to pay attention to what women thought. And uh, as a result, you know, you had policy, public policy that was deeply, profoundly flawed. 19th Amendment corrected that by empowering people and franchising women to have their voices heard. It was quite a lengthy struggle, though, wasn't it? Yes, it was, definitely, Uh, starting since the 1840s. And perhaps even in individual settings, even earlier than that, it becomes uh, a major issue, an issue that galvanized women participation activism probably in the late 1860s with the discussion of the 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, There was a lot of discussion uh, among suffragists who felt that, you know, we have done everything in terms of fighting the Civil War, contributing to that, and and nurturing the uh, health and welfare of soldiers, uh, as well as people on the home front. And um, we fought against slavery. We, we were the backbone of the anti-slave movement. And so, you know, a lot of those activists were frustrated after they had been told by their allies in the abolitionist movement that they would not be forgotten when the time was right. And so when it got to the discussion of the 15th Amendment, ratifying the 15th Amendment, the logical inclusion was to have women a part of those who would receive the franchise. And they were quite upset when um, one of the leaders of the abolition society, Wendell Phillips, said infamously, this is the Negro hour. And by that he meant, let's get black men enfranchised first, and then we'll come back and expand the franchise to women. And of course, to a lot of his his, uh, suffragist uh, allies, this was, well, if you're not gonna do it now, after you said that you would, why should we trust you in the future? And so the, the effort began to go through a strain. Old alliances began to fray and fall apart. It took quite a bit of effort for those groups to come back together. And I'm not just talking about the suffragists and the old abolitionists, but I'm talking about African-American men and white women. There was a tension. There had been an alliance through the personage of Frederick Douglass. But after the ratification of the 15th Amendment, that relationship between himself and 
Susan B. Anthony, for example, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, was fractured, and it took quite a bit for it to be healed. Black women suffragists uh, experienced quite a strain in their alliances with white women suffragists. And so there are all kinds of fracture points within that vast community of people interested in empowering people, giving people the right to vote. So it was quite a struggle during the second half of the 19th century. Why did the 14th Amendment not grant women or African-American men the right to vote? And why did we need to ratify the 15th and 19th Amendments in order for blacks and women to vote? At one time during the debate over the 14th Amendment, uh, it basically left citizenship. As you know, the 14th Amendment establishes citizenship for anyone born in the country. But during the debate, the word male was inserted into the language. And the the women uh, activists who felt that they could and should be included in that discussion um, felt betrayed by their allies who had allowed the word male to be injected. And the reason why those who supported the uh, inclusion of the word male as an exclusionary device was because they didn't feel like they would be able to get the support of white men who then could have the right to vote. So it was, it was deferring to the bias of the time, so to speak. It was deferring, an, an issue of deferring to, and, and being tactical, I suppose. Uh, if we can't get it all now, we have to be realist. If we try to go for franchisement for everyone, then we're probably not going to get it for anyone. And so we have to make compromises. But you can imagine the result, the reaction of those who wanted to see women included. Uh, Once again, it's it's about leadership. Abraham Lincoln uh, freed the slaves. That was highly controversial in 1862 and 63. His own cabinet didn't feel like it was a good idea. And many of the members of the cabinet were against freeing slaves because they felt like it would alienate important allies in the border states who were slaveholding, like Kentucky and and Maryland and and, and Missouri, but had not left the Union. Um, There's a fear that we would further alienate those people who we need to maintain leverage over this policy. Similarly, after the war, those who were in favor of the 14th Amendment felt that by giving it to women, we would lose the momentum, the impetus to have a 14th Amendment at all. So it was deferring to the bias that existed. And I referred to Abraham Lincoln before. Um, The difference with him and the time that the 14th Amendment and 15th Amendment were considered was that there was no person of standing, no person of gravitas who was able to assure the nation that we would be better off There was no prominent white man of power and influence and respect who could say basically, look, I know this is unprecedented, but it's the right thing to do. And you've just got to trust me. There was no leadership who was willing to to, to go there. And it's understandable. If you look at the times, it's understandable that no one was there. It took an extraordinary person to be Abraham Lincoln. He was an extraordinary person. But the key thing is that that we didn't have someone who could speak to our angels in the same way that Lincoln did. 
Um, and so as a result, we missed an opportunity in 1864 and 65. We're talking with Augsburg University professor William D. Green about the women's suffrage movement and the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. Do you see a divergence between what the passages of the 15th and 19th Amendments promised, such as a more equitable country, versus the reality, perhaps a much slower process of change? Well, I do see similarities. In the wake of the 15th Amendment, many of the friends of African Americans felt that they had done their share, that they had removed all the political impediments that had been placed on African Americans, and therefore it was left to African Americans to make hold their lives, so to speak, to deal with improving the race, uplifting the race. And what that attitude seemed to fail to recognize was that African-Americans, especially those living in the North, um, were a minority in terms of voting power. And that even though an African-American had the right to vote, it did not mean that he would be able to purchase a farm because a person who had a farm to sell wasn't required to deal with a, a prospective black buyer, only because of his bias. The ballot did not secure equitable treatment in the classrooms for his children. The ballot did not secure for him the access or the availability to have an apprenticeship so that he could get a better paying job, develop a skill. Uh, And so African-Americans after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, they were better off than they were without those protections. But it was a time where the momentum forward or racial uplift had begun to peter out. Society provided those protections to African-Americans. Society felt like it needed not to do anything more to deal with issues of justice. In the wake of the 19th Amendment, I think the presumption, in fact, I know that many of the advocates felt that the welfare, the political and social welfare of women would be enhanced because now they had the ballot in their hand and they could use that to impose an agenda on policymakers, on on people in elective office. The problem was that uh, in the wake of the 19th Amendment, we saw once again, with regard to African Americans, the welfare of that race begin to peter out. That women had the right to vote, but that sometimes the vote of the white woman, especially in the South, was used to keep the vote of the black woman out, keep it down. So racism continued. The ballot did not change people's attitudes in terms of race. So I see some similarities. They're not exactly the same, but the long and the short of it is that with the 19th Amendment, we did not see a closing of the gap with regard to social and political uh, and economic potential of African-American women like we thought we might. With the country divided into the North and the South, the Union and the Confederacy, a long-standing notion developed that Northern states were less racist and less hostile to African Americans. The recent police killing of George Floyd and the spotlight on Minnesota's high inequality between blacks and whites is dispelling this notion. But was there a difference a hundred years ago when black women could vote in Northern states like Minnesota, unlike most of the South? Yeah. 
And um, I would say that the quality of life of uh, African-American women in certain northern states were better than other northern states. But it, it, it wasn't necessarily because of the vote, as important as their suffrage was, their, their right to vote was. But it, 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 you know, it seemed that that plus the context of the society in which they lived had to join together in order to create a certain quality of life for people. I think that you know, Minnesota has long had issues that have oftentimes been swept under, as you suggested in your previous point about George Floyd. Um, we've always had disparate treatment of African-Americans in Minnesota in particular, notwithstanding the reputation of the state being exceptional with regard to race relations. But within the context of the time, if you live in America in the 1890s and at the turn of the century, it's going to be easy for one to conclude that notwithstanding the, the persistence of racism, that Minnesota is better than Mississippi and is to a large extent better than Illinois. You, you didn't find the same depth of poverty, uh, the same kind of poverty uh, that we saw. Now, that's not necessarily because uh, Minnesotans were superior, morally superior. It may mean some of that. But it certainly more fundamentally means that there just weren't enough African-Americans up here to pose a threat to white Minnesota, because we did have lynchings, we did have threatened lynchings, um, we did have those kinds of things. But I think the demographic uh, is as much a player in whether uh, a class of citizens have a better life than just the laws that are, that are intended to protect them. And I'll give you an example of that. In the wake of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, uh, 1920, you have the, the lynchings of three black men in Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, an African-American woman named Nellie Francis, who was one of the leaders of the state uh, effort to expand the vote to women, and a leader in the black community to galvanize support from the black community for that effort, also drafted the law and lobbied for its passage, an anti-lynching law in Minnesota. She was successful in 1921. So it would seem that, and you can't do that without having contacts. You can't do that without having had relationships with powerful people and knowing how to work in the legislature, how to walk the halls of the state house. And yet in, in 1924, uh, three years after that great success, she and her husband purchased a home in a white neighborhood in St. Paul. And you're probably familiar with that story where uh, in the Mac Roveland neighborhood or Sergeant Avenue, where they're met by a mob, in effect, claimed to even be affiliated with the Klan, burning crosses, harassment. And what's notable about all that is if that wasn't enough was that uh, a lot of her political and social friends who had helped support passage of, of women's suffrage in Minnesota, as well as the anti-lynching law in 1920, were nowhere to be seen. It illustrates how, at least in terms of the African-American experience, that both the 15th and the 19th Amendments are maybe two steps forward, but there's always a one step following backwards. 
We're talking with Augsburg University professor William D. Green about the women's suffrage movement and the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. 100 years ago, the town of South St. Paul had a special election, making it the first place in the nation after ratification of the amendment where women could vote. What is the significance of this? Was it just a coincidence of a special election, or did Minnesota's suffragettes play a large state and national role in the fight for the vote? I, I think people can reasonably disagree on the significance of it. It was, a, it was a very important time, but I think it was more coincidental than it was um, emblematic of the times, per se. The, the leadership in the legislature on the issue of suffrage uh, as well as in the executive offices with the governor on down, was remarkably supportive of, of suffrage, and, and especially near the end, under the leadership of Clara Ulan uh, for the Minnesota Women's Suffrage Association, and with a succession of governors who threw their political weight behind that effort. I think at the same time, and this is, this is one of the things I find interesting about that whole period and that whole issue of progressive policies uh, during this time. The leadership of the state and of organizations tended to be far more progressive than the rank and file. And I'm talking about the man on the street, the woman on the street did not necessarily follow at the same pace the progressive attitudes towards race and, and women as their leaders did, who were predominantly men, at least in terms of the anti-lynching business, and, and uh, women in terms of anti-suffrage. I also want to add to that in 1916 in Albert Lee, the uh, suffrage club in there was trying to organize itself. Uh, the women's suffrage organization was, was trying to attract more voters. And one of the inducements to join was a, a complimentary ticket to see Birth of a Nation. So, I mean, you know, you have these kinds of contradictory messages being conveyed. And um, it is on one hand, very paradoxical, but on the other hand, very much characteristic of the times that even though we can talk about ending lynching, Birth of a Nation was one of the most popular uh, movies out there and protected by a number of people who claim to be friends of African-Americans. So racism and sexism were, were not straight. They curved and they bent and they intertwined in each other and they popped up at strange moments. The animus uh, against those movements popped up at different moments. It was anything but linear. The movement was anything but linear in both cases. In your book, The Children of Lincoln, you devote a whole chapter to Sarah Berger Stearns. Tell us about Stearns. What role did she play in helping women attain the right to vote in Minnesota? And what was her relationship, if she had one at all, with black Minnesotans? Well, uh, that's a very important question you're asking. I think Sarah Berger Stearns is a phenomenal figure in history. And it, it's probably one of the issues that I have with how Minnesota history has been researched, you know, because she was a major player who should never have been forgotten. Uh, I think she single-handedly really started the women's suffrage movement in the second half of the 19th century, operating from, from uh, Rochester 
in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. Um, I came across her in her articles that she published in the Rochester Post. And these were not the kinds of articles for women, you know, good housekeeping and, you know, good, you know, child rearing and these kinds of stories that you tended to see dedicated to women in the mid 19th century. Her stories were about abortion and rape and incest and child abuse and, you know, murder and all of these very real issues that were happening at the time all over Minnesota with regard to men and women. She published it. She wrote about this stuff. She started a movement, in effect, because of those articles of, of women's suffrage. And she also collaborated with another woman who was a medical doctor in Champlin, Minnesota. And you can just imagine, you stop and think about what it's like being in Rochester in the middle of the winter in 1860. There is no interstate uh, connecting the two places. Uh, there's no four-wheel drive and there's no internet. She was isolated. So that kind of a passion was, was remarkable. I might also add that she in her teens attempted to go to the University of Michigan and was denied admission because she was a, a female. And she, she, uh, <laughs> she formed a class action and sued the University of Michigan for admission, challenging that policy. Stearns was a very, very amazing person. Her husband will later become mayor of Rochester, a judge uh, out of Duluth. She would continue her movement and would be in, for all intents and purposes, the, the Susan B. Anthony of Minnesota and would be a person who would contribute mightily to that incredible classic history of women's suffrage. And she, she wrote about Minnesota uh, herself. But her movement also reflected the movement of Susan B. Anthony in the sense that even though it was a, a movement to enfranchise all women, there were no women of color who were part of that movement, nor did she reach out to them. She was very active in the ratification of the 13th and 14th Amendments, but was very concerned about how the 14th Amendment had dropped the protection of women as citizens. And the 15th Amendment, she had major issues with. And the way that she talked about her frustration with her friends who allowed her to be disenfranchised, she was subject to bringing in uh, statements and terms that seem today quite racist. She reflected an attitude of frustration at the African-American male who she did not feel was as educated as many of the women that she worked with. And in one sense, she was right. Because when you look at the roster of the suffragist movement at the end of the 1860s, and you can see all of the people who belong from all over the state, there was a large number of women who were professional people, property owners, uh, publishers, as well as medical doctors. And, you know, there was a lot of anger at the fact that men like African-American men who had very little, if any, education would be pushed ahead of, of women uh, in, in terms of the suffrage. So she, she used the language of the times. I don't think she intended to, it's just who she was. She was a person of the times. She was in favor of women, she was in favor of ending slavery, but her frustration also carried her to the point where she was embracing some of the frustration of the Republican Party. And it's not unlike what we saw with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton 
in the uh, referendum campaign in Kansas in 1866, where out of frustration, not getting support from the Republican leadership, they solicited support from the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party was hostile to anything dealing with Lincoln and the Republican Party. It was that kind of reaction from frustration that I see common with Stearns. We're talking with Augsburg University professor William D. Green about the women's suffrage movement and the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. In Minnesota, once women were allowed to vote, did we see a significant change in the state's politics? I think in some ways we did. In other ways, we didn't. In terms of women's rights, you you see, at least in the debates in the legislature, um, more elected officials who are mindful of, quote, women's issues, the welfare of women, children, housing, the things that women during the campaign embraced, the home front. It wasn't enough to just be the paragon of virtue, which had been the attitudes of society prior to the the vote across the country, not just Minnesota. But you saw because of the work of Clara Eulin and and her organization, an effort to constantly put issues that we now don't think of as women's issues before them and had been ignored. And once again, I'm including issues dealing with housing, education, health and welfare of children. You know, those kinds of issues were brought up quite a bit during the discussions. Now, they didn't always attract the majority vote in terms of it being translated into programs and whatnot, but at least it was being discussed in a way that it hadn't been discussed. To a similar extent, you don't find any kind of the same movement with regard to race relations that you find with regard to uh, the welfare of, of children, of wives, of women. And so, um, you know, there seems to be some differentiation there. A lot of the formal documents um, of suffragists did not even really address the issue of race. Um, The presumption being that if we cover women, then by definition, we will be covering racial issues. Uh, And that's problematic because what that did was to leave the door open for continued discrimination along lines of race even though all women had the right to vote. There is this uneasy focus on whose interests we're going to be advancing. I might also add, too, during this period of time, uh, you know, we're in the middle or near the end of a period called the Progressive Era. And um, characteristic of the Progressive Era was women's suffrage and prohibition. Characteristic of the Progressive Era was also... Uh, the formation of the of the NAACP, but uh, with regard to prohibition, it begins shortly after this time, and you know the, the advancement of African Americans still continued to be a challenge for society to embrace. So it's another example of the cumbersome relationship and the uncertain relationship that existed between uh, champions of in both communities. William D. Green is a professor of history at Augsburg University. His latest book out on the University of Minnesota Press is titled The Children of Lincoln, White Paternalism and the Limits of Black Opportunity in Minnesota, 1860-1876. Professor Green, 
Thanks again for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. In 1969, Minneapolis Police Detective Charles Stenvig ran for mayor of the city as an independent and shocked the political establishment with his unexpected victory. Stenvig's campaign focused on law and order and won over voters who were concerned about crime and civil unrest. On the next Dialogue Minnesota, a look at the Stenvig phenomenon and its parallels to today's political environment. I'm Jim Dubois. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.